Although the United States spends far more on health care than other high-income countries, it consistently lags behind on measures of population health and health system performance, as documented in reports from the Commonwealth Fund. Among the challenges that the U.S. healthcare system needs to address are lack of access to care, administrative inefficiency, and disparities in the delivery of care. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Eric Schneider, Senior Vice President for Policy and Research at the Commonwealth Fund. Dr. Schneider has co-authored a perspective article about what it would take for the U.S. healthcare system to become one of the best in the world. Dr. Schneider, according to your recent report, what high-income countries have the highest performing healthcare systems, and what stands out about those systems? Well, thanks first for the chance to speak with you, Steve. The high performers in the report published this year were the United Kingdom, Australia, and the Netherlands. And those three countries are interesting because they use different approaches to financing care. The United Kingdom is a government-pay, government-managed delivery system. Australia is a government-payer, but the care is delivered by private hospitals and practices, a sort of Medicare for all. And the Netherlands is the government as a payer, but the insurance, they actually have competing insurance, paying independent providers, GP practices. The three things, though, that are really consistent, four actually things that are consistent across those countries, first is that they have universal coverage. They minimize cost sharing for primary care and prevention. The second is that they have very strong primary care. They support a workforce to make care widely and readily available, even on nights and weekends. The third that they do more of is reducing the administrative hassles and burden by standardizing benefits and formularies and rules and regulations. And then finally, they reduce the impact of income-related and other socioeconomic disparities because they invest more in basic social services like housing, transportation, and creating education employment opportunities. And that means that their populations start less sick and less vulnerable. So you write in your article that the U.S. health system actually is as good as or better than those of other high-income countries on some processes of care related particularly to patient-centeredness and on outcomes for acute MI and breast cancer, for example. So how did the U.S. become a leader in those areas? I think most people understand that the U.S. is very advanced technologically, that when people in the U.S. have access to doctors as the measures in our survey suggests, they tend to like those relationships, doctor-patient relationships. The doctors are engaged in wellness counseling. They also provide preventive services. We tend to do a little better on preventive services, which actually are 100% covered and sort of freely available. Mammography and flu shots are uh, mostly free. And then on the hospital-related or disease-related mortality, once people are in the system, they do receive, it looks like, a higher quality of care, especially in hospitals. So you write again in your article that the first challenge the U.S. system has to confront is the lack of access to care. How much of the access problem would be solved by expanding the number of people who have insurance coverage, and how much would depend on making that coverage more comprehensive? It's a great question. It is both. The Affordable Care Act has expanded the number of people with insurance coverage, as you know, and that has made a big difference, although there are still several million people who are uninsured. But it's also the case, and we're seeing this sort of across the board with different types of insurance, that people are underinsured. Larger proportions of people are not covered for all of the services that they need. And so people have higher deductibles, they have higher co-payments, and that's creating a sort of new problem in the last 10 years in which even people with insurance have several barriers to care. 
One striking point about affordability of care is that we found that a person with above average income in the U.S. is more likely to report barriers related to cost of care than a person with below average income in the United Kingdom. You spoke earlier about the need to beef up primary care. How do we do that? Is that a matter of creating incentives for physicians so they'll go into the field, or are there broader system-level changes that need to happen? Yeah, there too, I think it's going to be a mix. Medical school debt is a clear concern in terms of producing workforce, but there's been some good progress in terms of the patient-centered medical home model. If you look at the Netherlands, they organize small independent GP practices through professional guidelines that they integrate into care. They actually pay their GPs well. Actually, the other countries tend to pay relatively more to primary care relative to specialty care salaries to draw professionals into those fields. And then I think going back to the patient-centered medical home model, enhancing the quality of life, work professional life for primary care practitioners and using more team management, more proactive care management, and creating the sort of health IT systems that can better support population management. All of those steps could improve the work life of the professionals involved in primary care, make it more attractive, and also make it more effective. So looking at population health and reducing disparities, you talk in your article about increasing spending on social services as a way to achieve those aims. Can you give some examples of the kinds of services that you think money should go into, the kinds of services that would improve health? Yeah, it's also a great question. We're actually looking actively at the evidence around social services and how they contribute to health. Some of the best evidence, of course, is on housing. When people are homeless or have unstable housing, they're at much higher risk for problems. So providing stable housing is surely key. The other area is nutrition. It's from other research known that that hunger is actually a problem for a significant proportion of the U.S., And so making sure that people have both housing and enough to eat will certainly have direct effects on health. Finally, do you see anything in current legislative proposals that would help the United States address these challenges? I think the proposals have been focused on repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, and many of them have focused on reversing some of the gains from the best estimates. If people are losing health insurance coverage, that's a step backward. If coverage becomes less affordable or if people become underinsured, that actually would reverse the gains. There are glimmers of hope around the idea of strengthening the progress that the Affordable Care Act has provided to date. An active area right now is to strengthen the individual health insurance exchanges to expand Medicaid. That's still an opportunity for 19 states that have not yet expanded Medicaid or have chosen not to expand Medicaid to this point. And then increasing subsidies in a way that would make care affordable and minimize what can be significant costs to people. I think the second area of opportunity is not in the legislative sphere, but for Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services through its CMMI or Innovation Center to really keep the momentum going on value-based purchasing initiatives and their promotion of innovative care models giving providers incentives to improve health rather than paying fee-for-service is much better aligned with the goal of delivering proactive, timely, and evidence-based care to people who need it and is more consistent with what we see in high-performing countries. Thank you, Dr. Schneider.